Zoom. I went to the bathroom earlier, and I didn't want anything crazy to come over the speaker, you know. So, my bad. That's on me. That's my fault. Hey, if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn it to Psalm 97. The wonderful thing about the book of Psalms this summer is it's pretty much dead center of your Bible, so it's probably one of the easiest books to find. But if you hit Isaiah, turn a couple pages back to the left, because some Bibles have Isaiah a little bit more center than Psalm. There's an S, it's plural, Psalms, not just Psalm. We are studying a Psalm in the book of Psalms. So Psalm 97 is where we're going to be at this morning. So my name's Stephen, like I said, and I'm over at Cornerstone Church, which is uh, the church that planted Stonebridge. Matt, how many years ago? Five, four, five years ago? Joey's saying four. So I'm over there. I work for the College Ministry Salt Company, and I'm going to be going out on a church plant in a couple years. Just jumped into the candidacy program for that. So Natalie and I are gearing up for that. We got two kids, Isla and Jack, who are causing problems in the nursery, so hopefully the ladies in there can handle them. But uh, it's great to be here this morning, super grateful. So I grew up in Des Moines, went to Southeast Polk, and I am a dumb wrestler from Southeast Polk, and I was more aware of that a couple months ago. So I got to go to a conference in North Carolina, and we took a connecting flight down to St. Louis, and then to... uh, Raleigh-Durham, that was where we were landing. And on our flight from St. Louis to Raleigh-Durham, I walk on, and it was Southwest Airlines. And if you don't know anything about Southwest Airlines, there's no assigned seats. So you pay for which order in the line you get. So I naturally got, like, second to last onto the plane. So I walk on, and so every other seat is gone except for the seats in the middle aisle. And I see just this huge line going down the back of the plane. So I look, and on the very front row, the middle seat of that is open. I'm like, how is this not taken? How has nobody's taken this seat yet? But it was because the guy in the aisle seat was a massive man, just this large, large man. And I mean like muscular, tall, very large man. And I am the dumb wrestler who thought, oh, I'll sit there. So I said, hey, you mind if I sit down? And he's like, yeah, sure. I'm like, well, I'm small. I can squeeze, but two-hour flight, and I was like, hey, so how's it going the whole time? So I sit down, and we start talking as the flight gets going, and I'm hearing just kind of his story, where he's working, what he's doing, why he's flying to Raleigh-Durham. I'm sharing why I'm flying down there, and I start hearing some of the jobs he's had. So he's like, well, after I graduated college, I actually played basketball for Wake Forest, and then I went and played for the Charlotte Hornets, and then after a year of that, I went over to the European League. And I was like, whoa, that's cool. I was like, man, that's really cool. Wake Forest, that's sweet. How was that? He's like, it was great. I was like, okay, now, Charlotte Hornets, dumb wrestler moment. Charlotte Hornets, is that like, is that like a farm team for someone? And he's like, no, it's just a team. I was like, well, what, what league is it in? The NBA? And I'm like, oh. His name's Richard Joyce, which nobody in here probably knows who that is, but I said, Oh, Richard, I am an idiot from Iowa. I wrestled. That was all I did. I've never even watched an NBA game completely through. I had no idea. And he's like, yeah, you are an idiot from Iowa. Like, <laughs> so I'm sitting next to Richard Joyce, who, again, like only played one year in the NBA, but still he could whoop any of us in this room. And he's telling me who he played for, and I had no idea who he was or that even the team he played for was in the NBA. So 
dumb wrestler from Iowa. That's me. But here's where I'm going with all this. I was sitting next to Richard Joyce, and I had no awareness of the greatness that I was sitting next to. Again, one year in the NBA, he's not LeBron, but still, he could whip any of us. I had no awareness of, of the respect I should have for him, of his talent, his ability, no awareness of his greatness in the sport of basketball. So shifting over to the Psalms, this Psalm is going to show us the glory of God. Now, some of us in this room, we might outright reject the existence of God. And I just want to say, we are so happy that you're here this morning and exploring faith. But I would guess that the vast majority of us in this room live our daily lives with not a rejection of the glory of God, not a rejection of the existence of God, but an unawareness and ignorance of his glory. You are like an idiot from Iowa sitting on a plane next to a former NBA guy with no awareness of the greatness that you're sitting next to. Most of us, I think, live our daily lives day in, day out with no awareness, no acknowledgement of the holiness, of the glory, of the majesty of God. And this psalm is going to wake us up to the reality of the glory of God. Now, there might be times we come to Stonebridge once a week and it's like a defibrillator that just like pops us awake for a couple seconds, but then we go back to lunch and we've already forgot about the glory of God for the rest of the week. So we want to look at this psalm this morning and see with fresh eyes the glory of God. So that's our question this morning. Do you live with a daily awareness of the glory of God? Day in, day out, do you live with a daily awareness of the glory of God? So the first half of the psalm is going to show us just this amazing description of God's glory. And then the second part of this psalm is going to show us some ways that as we live with an awareness of God's glory, what that will look like in our day-to-day life. So Psalm 97, almost dead center of your Bible. I'm just going to read the first half, then we'll talk about, analyze what it's saying about God's glory, and then we'll look at the second half. And see what it looks like in our lives daily to be aware of his glory. All right, Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coasts and islands be glad. Clouds and total darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, the whole of the whole earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. All the peoples see his glory. So this first half gives us a vision of God's glory. And it starts out in verse 1 with this statement. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. There hasn't been a single second in all of history that God has not been actively reigning in that moment. Completely in control. All of eternity, there has never been a moment where God did not have complete control over that situation. The Lord reigns. And this is a good thing. Look what it says. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coasts and islands be glad. It's a good thing that God reigns. 
He is the king over everything. He is sovereign over all of our lives, over every historic event that has ever happened. He reigns. And that should cause the earth to rejoice and the coasts and islands to be glad. Now that can be a little confusing for us at times. And I would say that probably many of you, your largest obstacle or the thing that causes you the most doubt in your life is actually if God is reigning, then how come all of the evil that he allows to happen? How come all of the the suffering that he's allowed me to go through? If God is reigning, if he is sovereign in every moment of all time, how can he allow evil in the world? So back in April, our son Jack was born. And at the beginning, everything looked normal. Natalie was having a C-section, and we're in the operating room. And after Jack was born, they let Natalie hold him for a little bit, and then they took him over to the the weighing station and just where they lay him to transition for the first 10, 12 minutes of life. And this was the same with Isla, so we were expecting that. After about 15 minutes, I'm like, okay, at this point, this is when Isla was brought to me, like, what's going on? And more nurses started to flock over to Jack's uh, station. And we began to realize as 20 minutes went by, as 30 minutes went by, as 40 minutes went by, that something wasn't right. So I started going over there and getting updates from the nurse. And she's saying, well, I think it's going to be okay. He's just having a hard time transitioning. We've had to give him oxygen. So we'll see what happens. Well, they wrap up Natalie's surgery and they're taking her back to the room. And I'm left with the decision. Do I go with my wife? Stay with my son? So I decided to stay with my son. So they say, hey, we're going to take him over to the nursery. So we went over to the nursery Then they brought in the x-rays. They could see all of this cloudiness in his lungs. And so they're like, hey, we got to take him over to the NICU. And for the next three days, we were just in this unknown what is going on. They didn't know. We didn't know. And he's in the NICU. And it was horrible. Just awful. And finally, on the third day, they began to realize that it was pneumonia. So our son had pneumonia, and somehow they don't know how he contracted that while he was in the womb. And so we were in the NICU for nine days, which I know that that pales in comparison to so much of the suffering that you guys have experienced in your lives. But it was horrible being in the NICU. And I remember going in the first time, and I'm like seeing all of these wires and all these monitors and everything going on having no idea what's going on with my son and just sitting there. And I start rubbing his arm and the nurse, she's like, hey, actually you can't touch him like that. You actually have to hold, like if you're going to touch him, you have to hold. And I'm like, what is this place where I can't even touch my son? And so it wasn't that he was born Tuesday. and It wasn't until Saturday that we began to get to hold him and stuff like that. And it was just a horrible experience to go through suffering. And I don't know fully what the purpose of that was, our nine-day NICU stay. And I can't go through and give purpose for all of the suffering that you've experienced. I can't go through and give purpose to all the atrocities that have happened in the world. But here is what anchored Natalie and I during that time. The Lord reigns. So if he's in control, why does he allow suffering? How can we trust him in the midst of suffering? Verse 2, clouds and total darkness surround him righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. How can we trust God as he's reigning and in control? It's because his reign is established on righteousness and justice. 
Those are the foundation of his throne. So here are the two truths that anchor us in the NICU room. God is in control, and he is a good God who his throne is established on righteousness and justice. That's why Romans 8.28 says, For those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, whether or not we have the ability to perceive what that good is, is another question. But here's what we can know. The Lord reigns, and his throne is established on righteousness and justice. That is what anchors us when we go through the NICU room experiences. When we go through the sufferings of this life, the Lord reigns. And his reign is good. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. To live a life in awareness of God's glory begins here. The Lord reigns, and that reign is a good reign. So then later, moving on, verse 3, he starts to describe the glory of God. So not only does he reign, not only is his reign good, but look at how he describes the glory of God. Verse 3, fire goes before him and burns up his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord, the whole earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. I mean, look at these descriptions. Ask yourself, is this my daily thought process? When I think of who God is, are these the descriptions that go into my mind? Fire goes before him. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. Mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. The heavens proclaim his righteousness. Is this the dominant way I think about God? Is this, on a day-to-day basis, the things that come into my mind when I think of who God is? Lightning lighting up the world. The earth seeing and trembling. The heavens proclaiming his righteousness. When I was in high school, we got to go over to Estes Park, which is where the Rocky Mountain National Park is. And arguably, the most beautiful thing in all of the world are mountains, mountain ranges. We uh, went on this hike up into this mountain lake area, and we got to this lake. And as high school guys, we did the one thing that is normal. We swam in the freezing cold lake, which easily was the most cold water I've ever, the coldest water I've ever been in my life. There was ice chunks floating around. But there was a rock in the middle of the lake, and we had to get to it. So we did what normal high school guys do, and we swam to that rock. Again, dumb wrestler from Iowa. So actually, once we got to the rock, clouds just come, like, streaming in, and we had to get back to shore, get our clothes on, and then, like, sprint down this mountain to avoid the mountain thunderstorm, which we did. And then Natalie and I went back there two years ago, and I was like, let's do the hike again. So dumb wrestler from Iowa. Uh, but mountains, man, they are, if I could go every single year, I would, because you can just sit in a mountain range and just stare for hours and hours and hours because they are so majestic and so vast and so beautiful. There, there's danger, mount, like storms can just come flying in out of nowhere. Mountains are so captivating. And it's almost like the psalmist is saying, hey, let's have a glory contest. Earth, you're up. What do you got for me? And they're like, Mountains. And the psalmist is like, okay, God, how about you? And God shows up. And what does it say in verse 5? The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. In the presence of the Lord, Everest looks like a tea candle in an oven. Imagine that. I mean, the, the most beautiful thing that we can think of 
on earth, just tea candle in an oven before God. That is God's glory. That is God's power. So powerful, so majestic that the most majestic thing in all of creation just goes tea candle oven in his presence. Is that the dominant way that you think about God? Do you live in this daily awareness of that glory? Or have you reduced God to just such a small being that you are like on a plane with an NBA guy that you are just indifferent towards and unaware of his greatness? The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that we worship. And we are supposed to cultivate just this daily awareness of his glory. Just an awe at his power. You know, people get so confused by the question, what does it mean to fear God? Well, when you have a vision of God's glory like this, you begin really quickly to put two and two together. To fear God means to stand in awe at the God who can melt Everest just by showing up. It's to to look at him and be in awe and wonder and worship of him. Fearing God doesn't mean to walk timidly to him, but to have an awareness of his vastness, of his glory. Man, I don't know at all, all the reasons why God took us through our NICU room experience with Jack. But I think one of them that I've been reflecting on is this. Stephen, wake up! Wake up to my glory! God was looking at me in that room and saying, stop having your head down in your work and all of your own interests and all of your own things that just distract you. Wake up to my glory! Because there's nothing like a NICU room where a nurse tells you how to touch your kid that strips away the illusion of control that we live with. That strips away the illusion of independence that we have. And just makes us fall and say, God, I need you. You reign and your reign is good. And you are all powerful. God. I don't know if that's the only thing that God had for us in that NICU room, but that was for sure one of them that just woke me up to all the things that pull my gaze away from him. There's so many times that my work or the chores at home or all of the other interests that just fill my life just blind me and shield me from seeing the glory of God. And this psalm is saying, look, wake up. The Lord reigns. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. Do you see God that way? Or do you just show up on Sundays or maybe have one Bible study a week that just for a a second does the defibrillator and then you go right back to sleep? Man, imagine what your life would look like if you just daily cultivated this, this deep awareness and awe of the majesty of the Lord. Imagine the levels of peace that you would feel through the trials that you're going through right now. You know, there's nothing like a NICU room experience when you have a God that melts wax. And you're like, man, God, if if mountains melt like wax before you, then you can heal the pneumonia in my son. If you're the God who reigns and your reign is established on righteousness and justice, you can 
You can work all of this out with the job I just lost. You can work all of this out with all the tensions and confusion inside my family. You can work all of this out in any number of the places I'm suffering. The psalmist wants us to wake up to the glory of God. To actually see him for who he is. The God who melts Everest like a teacup candle in an oven. Just by showing up. So the question is, do you live with a daily awareness of God's glory? Just a daily awareness of who he is. The God who is reigning over every situation you're facing right now. The God whose reign is good. The God whose power and presence melts mountains like wax. Do you live in awareness of that? The second half of this psalm is now going to show us what happens when we do live in that awareness. So I'm going to read 7 through 12. And we're going to see three things that as we cultivate this daily awareness of God's glory that will begin to be produced in us. The first is a hatred of sin. Second, a rejection of idols. And third, a rest in his promises. So verse 7. All who serve carved images, those who boast in idols, I will put them to shame. All the gods must worship him. Zion hears and is glad. Judah's villages rejoice because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over the whole earth. You are exalted above all the gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He who protects the lives of his faithful ones... He rescues them from the power of the wicked. Light dawns for the righteous. Gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. And give thanks to his holy name. So as we cultivate this daily awareness of God's glory, here are the three things that we're going to start to notice in our lives. First, let's look at verse 10. You who love the Lord hate evil. As we begin to see God's glory more for what it is, it's going to begin to create in us a hatred towards evil. Now, this is both on the societal level and the personal level. On the societal level, as we see just the injustices of the world, it's going to, it's going to unsettle us. We're going to see as God sees. We're going to hate the, the abuse of power, the injustices, the racism that we see. But not just on a societal level, but also on an individual level. When we're indifferent towards God's glory, we're indifferent to the sin that dwells in us. But as our eyes are open to seeing God for who he is, we begin to to hate with just this holy hatred, the sin that still dwells in us. So think of it this way. Natalie and I uh, do a date night question anytime we go on a date. And what that is, it's literally just a fun question that helps me get to know her. Sometimes I think if I had to write Natalie's biography, what don't I know yet? So I ask her a question like that. But sometimes it's dumb. Like, who's your favorite Harry Potter character? You know, it's like, well, Dumbledore, of course. You know, and hers is probably, who is yours? You don't know? Hermione? That's definitely hers. Uh, But a couple months ago, uh, this was our date night question. I asked her, hey, what is one thing that has come into your life since we've started dating or been married that you love, that you're excited, that wasn't a part of your life beforehand, but now having known each other is now a part of your life? So I think for her, it was Ellis Teca and Mexican food, which I was like, yes, if I could bring one thing into Natalie's life, that would be it. 
the thing for me, I never liked pop music before I started dating Natalie. But Natalie loves pop music, just absolutely loves it and just always has it cranked on. And so my new love is Justin Bieber. I, I love Justin Bieber. All Yes, yes. If I was your boyfriend, I'd never let you know. You know, just going all the way back, how to get into Natalie's world. So I love pop music now because Natalie loves pop music. She loves Ellis Tecca because I love Ellis Tecca, and it's great. But that is the natural thing that happens. As you begin to be captivated by someone and fall in love with them, the things that they love naturally start to become the things that you love. And likewise, the things that they hate, you naturally start to hate. This is what God is saying. Man, you who love me, you who love the Lord, hate evil. As we begin to be captivated by the glory of God, the God who reigns and whose reign is good and whose power is so vast that mountains milk like wax, it will produce in us a love for the things that God loves and a hatred towards the things that God hates. Which is why when we are indifferent to the glory of God, we are indifferent to the sins of society and the sins that are dwelling inside of us. We start to justify our sin and be indifferent towards it. So we'll say, man, yeah, I gossip, but I'm just stating what's true. I'm just stating what's obvious. Yeah, I struggle with lust, but at least I'm not sleeping around. Yeah, I struggle with greed, but you have no idea how greedy my neighbor is compared to me. Yeah, I struggle with anger, but if only you knew what I had to put up with. When we are indifferent to the glory of God, we begin to be indifferent towards the sin that dwells inside of our hearts. But as we begin being captivated by his glory, when we begin to wake up to the God who reigns and whose reign is good and whose power melts mountains like wax, we begin to have a hatred of sin that is holy. A desire to, to pursue obedience to him. So that's the first thing. We, you who love the Lord hate evil. The second thing that we see is a rejection of idols. So verse 7. All who serve carved images, you, those who boast in idols, will be put to shame. All the gods must worship him. There's a lot of ways you could define idolatry, but one of the ways you could define idolatry is this. You look to things outside of God for your sense of security, your sense of safety. I look to things that are not God to give me the sense of safety that I really desire. Now, we are created to be people that need, and it's good that we desire security and safety. But the problem becomes when we look to things outside of God for that. So for the Israelites, you don't need to turn there. Here's what God says about them in Isaiah 31. In Isaiah 31, 1. Man, aren't you guys glad we're not going through Isaiah this summer? So much harder to find. Should have bookmarked it. Sorry, Matt. Isaiah 31, 1. Here's what God describes the idolatry of the Israelites. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and in a large number of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel and they do not seek the Lord. 
So what was the idolatry of the Israelites? They were looking to Egypt for help. They were depending on horses. They were trusting in their abundance of chariots, not in God. They were looking to Egypt, horses, and chariots for their sense of security. Now back to Psalms 97. Look, we might not have carved idols sitting on our mantles, but each of us have idols sitting on our hearts. Things that we're looking to for our sense of safety and security that are not God. So a couple examples. Probably the three most dominant places that we look for safety and security outside of God is money, health, and relationships. So money. The reason why we might be struggling with greed is not so much just because we love all the things that money gives us, but actually because we're looking to money to give us a deep sense of safety and security. If I just work hard enough in my job, then I'll finally be able to give the security that my family has always needed. If I just get a little bit more saved, a little bit more invested, then I'll know everything's going to be okay and all the problems are going to be taken care of. Health. Man, if I just exercise and live a healthy lifestyle enough, then I will have a sense of security. I just am going to obsess about working out so that I never have to worry about being sick or not being there for my family. Relationships. I am willing to do whatever as long as I fit in with people because people are the thing that give me the sense of security that I so long for. Or a romantic relationship. Man, I'm willing to stick it out with this person who actually is hurting me in order to get a sense of security from them. But here's the problem with idols. Isaiah 56, 13 says, look, you can trust in your idols, but the wind is going to blow them away. They're not trustworthy places. Money, just think about 2008. Health, some of the most healthy and exercised people in the world get sick. Relationships, relationships can be broken. The problem with idols is that they depend on our effort to get them, but then they never deliver on the promises that they offered in the beginning. We need a place for security and safety that one, doesn't depend on our effort, and two, is unshakable, is actually truly secure. So here comes the third thing that happens when we see God's glory. The end of verse 10. We can rest in his promises. He protects the lives of his faithful ones. He rescues them from the power of the wicked. Idols promise safety and security, but then never deliver. But God is the God who can promise safety and security and actually can deliver. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, God took care of the greatest threat to your life. Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died in your place so that the eternal threat that faces all of us could be eliminated. So that we could actually have a true safety eternally that is unshakable, that can't be threatened. Why? Because it didn't depend on our effort, it depended on Jesus's. And two, it rests on the God who reigns, who is good, and whose presence melts mountains. When we have that reality sink into our hearts and sink into the core of our being, we will be able to face NICU rooms with peace and confidence in God. We'll be able to face pink slips 
with peace and confidence in God. We will be able to face breakups with peace and confidence in God. We will be able to face any of the waves that this life throws us with peace and confidence in God. Why? Because the greatest threat to your life was taken care of on the cross when Jesus died in our place. That is a safety that idols could never offer. It is an eternal security that was purchased not by our effort, but by His, by Jesus's. Are you daily living in awareness of God's glory? Are your days just just marked by an awareness of who he is, that he reigns and is good and his power, his presence, melts mountains like wax? Is that how you daily operate in this world? Because as we cultivate seeing his glory We'll begin to pursue obedience. We'll begin to to reject idolatry. We'll begin to rest in his promises. Now, the answer for most of us is, no, I don't daily live in that reality. Which is why we do things like read our Bibles. So that daily I open this up and I'm like, oh, Psalm 97. Man, God's glory. God, help me to remember that today. I go to a small group, a connection group, because, man, I need people to remind me, hey, look at God's glory. Let's focus. Let's see God's glory in a new way and then live in an awareness of his glory daily. Let's pray. God, we ask that we would be people who are just so captivated by your majesty, your glory, that it would shape all of our lives. God, that we would be people that just rest in such confidence in your promises. That we'd be people that Nikki rooms don't shake us, that being fired, layoffs don't shake us, because not because those things aren't hard, but because your promises are good and sure. God, help us to be people who are just daily living in awareness of your glory, who see you as the one who reigns, whose reign is good and whose presence melts mountains. Lord, we love you. Amen.